Thank you, well, well, welcome to the penultimate uh, seminar in this series. We have one more next week. And we are, I always say we're very fortunate, we're very, very, very fortunate to have Alan Rusbridge here for two reasons. One, there are many reasons, but for two principal reasons. One, as you have seen in his paper and in others, as news today and was last night, of the success that Robert Murdoch had in getting control of B Sky B. A deal which has included a hiving off or the partial hiving off of Sky News. And in the editorial which Alan wrote on this in today's Guardian, uh, it begins, I'm paraphrasing, saying Rupert Murdoch has won again. Why is this the least surprising sentence in the English language? Uh, uh, the line being in his and other papers that after the trade industry secretary Vince Cable had confessed to uh, lady reporters that he was at war with Murdoch and he was then taken off the case and quickly adjudicated it that the, uh, the way was clear for Murdoch to get control of B Sky B. Um, so you may want to ask questions about that. But the main issue of the moment and the one that Alan's going to address <coughs> I think largely is on Wikipedia, or Wiki, Wikileaks, <laughs> Wikileaks. Um, uh, as you know, he, his paper was one of five, the Guardian, New York Times, El Pais in Spain, uh, Spiegel magazine in Germany, and Le Monde in France, these five papers published some, actually a small proportion of something like 250,000 diplomatic cables which WikiLeaks had uh, secured um, as a, a book written by two Guardian reporters, well what reading says, um, the Guardian and the others took some weeks to redact and then to publish. Uh, and that was a story which ran for some weeks and had a huge effect. And he's going to talk about that and the implications for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion called success. So, Alan. Um, so, thank, thank you again for inviting me. It's always lovely to come here. Um, so, as, as John said, I'm going to talk uh, about WikiLeaks, but, but also about my latest thinking of where journalism is going to go, and I think there's a sort of link between the, the two. Um, I'm just going to go through the sort of bare, bare bones of uh, WikiLeaks because I won't take it as granted that all of you will have read this excellent book by um, my, my, my colleagues. Um, so the, the, the basic narrative um, begins uh, obviously with uh, before our involvement with whoever it was that um, uh, leaked the, uh, the the documents to uh, WikiLeaks. At that point, WikiLeaks was. Uh, I think the best description of it at the moment is in Daniel Domscheit-Berg's book, um, because he's the only insider to really uh, told the story of um, <coughs> the nature of the operation uh, before uh, 2010. But I think you get a, a, a sense of that, of, of a, a very small uh, organisation, um, essentially with, with um, Julian and Daniel at the heart of it. Um, and, and it's sort of interesting how something that, that small and, and um, uh, nebulous uh, was beginning to uh, exercise quite real power um, 
especially with the um, release of the collateral murder video um, in the early part of last year. So our, our main involvement came when um, Nick Davis, um, the Guardian reporter, um, read about the arrest of um, Bradley Manning and the fact that Julian Assange, uh, who was, uh, had this material, was, as it were, on the run. He was um, uh, sought after because he had this disk of material. Uh, and it, it's um, interesting that Nick Davis was the only journalist in the world who um, thought it was worthwhile trying to track him down and um, persuade him that, that he ought to partner with a mainstream media organization in, in order to publish. So he, he tracked him down to uh, Europe, uh, sat him down uh, and had, had a cup of coffee and persuaded him right from the beginning that he should do this not only with The Guardian but with The New York Times. Uh, and I want to come back to the, the involvement of The New York Times. But that, that was fairly critical from the beginning. Uh, and it was about trying to pin the, the legal basis of what we were doing on the First Amendment. And I'll, I'll come back to that later. Uh, about a week later, um, Julian proposed bringing in uh, Der Spiegel because he knew um, uh, Holger uh, and Marcel, the two um, top investigative reporters on uh, Der Spiegel. Uh, and there were just the three, three of us who, who published the two parts of it. And the, the first two parts were the, the Afghan war logs and the uh, Iraqi war logs. And, and um, I think we didn't publish them very well in the sense that we published them all in one day. Um, so this was kind of a hopeless way to, to, to tell the story with that much data. Um, but the reason we did it was because the legal advice that we got that we probably weren't going to get day two, i.e. Um, we're all sitting here at the end of this cycle thinking um, what, what a sort of tremendously interesting thing it was. If I could show you the legal memos I was getting in advance of the first publication, where, where they were saying they were going to the official secrets act, they were going to do with the espionage act, they were going to um, uh, impound the documents, they were coming to raid the building, you're, you're never going to have a day two after this. It, it takes you, I think, back into the sort of mentality of what we were facing. Uh, you know. So um, I think um, the parts one and two went pretty well. Um, we had um, some tensions over redaction, uh, which are documented in, in this book. Um, I, I think Julian hadn't thought about that issue very deeply, uh, and it was immediately obvious to the, the, the three, to the Spiegel, New York Times, and Guardian that it would work severe issues to do with uh, identifying people in these documents. Um, and I think Julian moved a long way on, onto the position of the mainstream media in, in respect to that. Uh, and there were tensions about who was in and who was out of this arrangement. Um, uh, and I, again, I think it's fairly well documented that um, there was a breach of trust felt uh, because uh, we felt that, th that this was a highly sensitive thing that we were involved in because of the, of the, of the possibility that people, people were going to come to harm as a result of the publication uh, and that that, was, that would you know, a, a be terrible in itself because some of these people were kind of innocent people um, who, uh, who in no sense um, deserved that kind of um, uh, being put into the public domain, we felt. Uh, and second, we thought it would be that there would be a terrible sort of backlash against the whole enterprise. 
Um, and so the more we discovered that other partners had been brought in who, who hadn't been part of this discussions at the Spiegel and the New York Times uh, and us, the more we felt the whole exercise was uh, endangered. And that led to an initial um, breaking off of relations between Nick Davis, who was the original reporter, and, and Julia. But apart from that, we felt it had gone uh, fairly well, and we moved on to part three, which was um, the cable gate, which was a, a much more complex uh, and much more sort of explosive um, uh, trove of uh, documents. Um, the, the thing was a sort of marvel of logistics. If, you, if we think back on it, we had, a, we had uh, initially a, 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 a daily paper in London an afternoon paper, uh, sorry, a, a weekly paper in Germany, uh, and a paper in New York in a completely time zone, uh, trying to coordinate essentially a bunch of anarchists in a bunker somewhere um, with whom we couldn't communicate, uh, except by uh, encoded messaging, which was the only way that they would communicate. And, and to that were later added an afternoon paper in, in France and a, a daily paper in Spain. So it was, it was not a, a, a trivial thing to get all this um, uh, uh, coordinated. Um, I think by then WikiLeaks had huge uh, internal problems, which if you read Daniel Domscheit, um, Berg's book about it uh, was, uh, in his view, caused by the, by the speed at which it was all going and, 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 uh, and Julian's autocratic style within uh, uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, and that was leading to resource difficulties on, on their side because they simply weren't geared <coughs> up to, to handle what was a massive amount of data. It was about 300 million words uh, compared with the Pentagon Papers in 1971, which was 2.5 million words. Uh, and so um, it, it, there was a, you, I mean, you shouldn't underestimate that the logistical difficulties of, of going through this, this vast database, um, trying to find the, what the, different, the five different organizations thought was worth using. Uh, coordinating a central policy on, on redaction, getting that through to these anarchists in the bunker, uh, publishing at an agreed time simultaneously. And there were, there were further tensions emerging by then, which was that, that, that Julian basically didn't want to deal with New York Times. Uh, he was having negotiations with other people that he wanted to bring in. Uh, at some point, the whole thing was incredibly complicated by the fact that this American journalist, Heather Brooks, had got hold of the entire database from another source. So uh, WikiLeaks was spreading leaks. Um, uh, and we had all the same extreme nervousness about the, the fact that people, that human sources were going to be imperiled by careless publication. Uh, of this uh, vast database, which we just didn't believe was in any way secured. And by then it was apparent that WikiLeaks itself had, had fractured, that, that Julian and Daniel Domscheit Bird had fallen out, and, and it wasn't entirely clear what WikiLeaks was anymore, uh, or whether it was a going concern uh, 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 at all. So there were sort of you know, tensions built in the time. Um, but I think looking back uh, up to up to mid-December, I think actually it was it was a great success, and it had achieved the, the aims um, that all of us wanted to achieve. Uh, it was done safely. No one's been able to prove uh, any harm has come to anybody as a result of the, the of the of the publication, and I'm sure we would have heard about it if, if uh, it had. Uh, I think from the uh, American State Department point of view, uh, the sky didn't fall in. Um, 
and you, you could take the view that the, actually American foreign policy has been rather advanced by by the publication uh, of uh, the documents. We, we might talk about that later. Um, there were no legal impediments to uh, what we did. Um, and we sort of all emerged actually with relationships uh, intact through this, what, as I said, was a, was a difficult thing. Uh, Julian is a, is a difficult person. He's a, he's a brilliant person. Um, uh, I think we emerged largely with huge respect for his vision and his uh, technical skills. Um, but you know, there's no concealing the fact that he was a uh, difficult person that we, that we had um, uh, different um, different initial starting points about transparency and uh, difficult uh, different views of, about the, the, the sort of big ethical considerations that cropped up during the course of it what what to leave in what to take out uh, what we were selecting what we were redacting uh, and uh, the, the whole difficulty here which I, I think um, was uh, how much contact you're going to have with officialdom in advance. So you're going to tell the State Department about what you're doing. Uh, should you have a policy of just not um, uh, discussing them at all? Do you, do you tell them which documents you're going to publish in order to allow them to have a response? Uh, and we were really sort of feeling this as we went. Uh, and uh, the, the most... Um, uh, the, the, the issue on which we had the most... Um, Discussions was funny enough Yemen, um, where um, we were split um, amongst the mainstream uh, partners uh, in, in response to absolutely heartfelt pleas from the State Department not to uh, include some of the cables from Yemen uh, because of uh, uh, you know, a, a, a strong case was made that this was a country that was in the sort of front front line of the war against uh, Islamist uh, terrorism. Uh, and that we would really have blood on our hands if we um, undermined the position of the government and, and revealed uh, the duplicity of the government at the level of, of, of government. And you may say, in retrospect, with, with, the, with the hindsight of everything that's gone on, that was a funny thing to be arguing about, but it, was a, it, it felt as a real issue at, at the time. And we, incidentally, we, we did publish the, the, the Yemen cables. Um, so, so that took us to December, and things then became in, immensely complicated by what was happening with these Swedish sex charges um, to Julian, which you know was a completely uh, different issue uh, altogether. Um, but we had, as, as newspapers, uh, a, a bit of an ethical dilemma about what you do about this. Um, is Julian your source? Um, if he's your source, what, what kind of protection do you owe him? Uh, or was it important to uh, put the facts on the record about him uh, as far as we knew them? Or, or should we feel that we had some view, some, um, some sort of um, suggestion that we should uh, protect him as a source? Uh, I think we, we felt more uneasy because of the way that the, his legal defense and supporters uh, started talking about this case. So the more they started saying this was a this was a, a CIA plot, or that it was to use Mark Stevens, his, his lawyer's word, a honey trap, uh, the more you felt uh, uneasy because there was no evidence that it was a CIA plot, or, or that 
uh, it was a honey trap. You know, I take the word honey trap to, to mean that, that, that these women had deliberately uh, set out to uh, go to bed with him in order to entrap him or, or discredit him. And, and I, I see no evidence to su suggest that. Uh, and when Nick Davis was then sent um, uh, the police file, uh, it, it seemed to us that we couldn't really just sit on that um, uh, and, and pretend that we didn't have it or in any way suppress it. In fact, it was rather against the, the spirit of what we took Julian to be uh, about. Uh, and we, uh, it was complicated again because they, Julian was now out of the bunker, but he was in prison, so it was even harder to communicate with. But we, we, um, uh, we tried uh, our best to uh, to try and represent that fairly. But but um, he felt very strongly that we we shouldn't have done that. He felt that he was a source and that he deserved a protection as a source. Uh, and I think that raises all kinds of issues um, which may yet become legal issues with the United States government about whether he was a source, whether he's a publisher, whether he's an editor, uh, whether he's uh, something in between, whether he's some kind of intermediary or entrepreneur or impresario. And I think the thing that the truth is he's all those things. Um, that perhaps he claims that he has least claim to being a source because it, it, it's pretty clear that he's, he's not the original source. He was a kind of handler. Um, but, uh, but he cleverly exploits those um, differences for reasons that I perfectly understand. Um, uh, but anyway, that, 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 that was a difficult moment in the, in, in the relationship. Uh, and I think when you deal with him, you absolutely get to this, this um, sort of um, framework that he has that you're either against him or you're with him. Uh, the reason he fell out with the New York Times was he, he disapproved of a, a John F. Burns profile that he felt was insufficiently respectful of him. Uh, he fell out with Daniel Domchak Berg. Uh, he thinks the BBC is a terribly sleazy organisation. Uh, the Guardian is apparently the slimiest organisation in the world now, according to him. Um, those of you who read Private Eye last week will see that he, um, he, he thought that Private Eye was, was going to be on his side. So there's, there's a support autocratic side, um, which also revealed me to be Jewish, um, which was news to me. Um, um, so there's a sort of very strangely autocratic controlling side of him, which I think is in tension with this um, uh, philosophy about um, free information and, and a sort of sense of ownership. Uh, there were other uncomfortable things about, about the background of WikiLeaks. Uh, there's this nebulous character, Israel Shamir, uh, in, in the background, who's a very unattractive, uh, Holocaust-denying anti-Semite who has got some uh, uh, relationship with WikiLeaks that is not entirely clear, but is um, enough to make many people feel uh, uncomfortable. Uh, and he, he's. Uh, he's done some very bad things uh, to me, to, to, to The Guardian, including writing a very uh, obnoxious piece about Luke Harding, our uh, Oscar correspondent in Pravda, uh, about 10 days ago when Luke was back uh, at some danger, trying to get his family out, and, and Shamir, for reasons best known to himself, did this denunciation of Luke as a CIA spy. Uh, and saying that the and um, saying that the, the Guardian was a kind of, kind of CIA front, um, which um, was a very dangerous piece to write at a time when Luke was trying to get his um, family out of Russia, and, and, and Julian tweeted <coughs> approvingly with a little tweet saying, "Who is behind the Guardian?" So there's this kind of sort of 
um, uh, there is a sense that you're dealing with somebody who is not entirely reliable in, in, in terms of um, the way he confronts the, the truth. So this, this relationship that was um, uh, uh, difficult but, but I think achieved good things uh, then became uh, quite problematic. Uh, and there's this sense, this, this bizarre thing about Julian is that he's, he's perceived as either the Messiah or the devil. Uh, very few people, he, he's got completely polar, polarizing um, uh, um, thing about him. And if you don't believe he's either the Messiah or the devil, you get caught in this very uncomfortable ground in between where you get shot at from both sides. And that's, um, we've had quite a lot of that. On the other hand, Steven Spielberg has bought the uh, book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that will make a very interesting film here one day. Um, it would be a shame if, if that, that story about the relation with um, Assange overshadowed what I think are some interesting um, larger questions about what, what went on. Um, and I've been sort of waiting for a university to come along and, and want to engage with some of these questions. But, um, Maybe the sign of how universities are cash trapped, they, they, they haven't yet. But I, I think there are interesting pieces of work to be done um, uh, about this whole question of transparency versus secrecy uh, uh, and how much uh, a state needs to keep things secret. And, and actually, the, the, the fact that the, the, the sky doesn't fall in when you, when you reveal all these things that are supposedly very highly secret. Um, I, I think it would be, I haven't seen anyone yet do a really solid piece of work on, on the effects of the cables and people have speculated uh, the, the extent to which they uh, had a, a part in the events in the Middle East and North Africa. My, my guess is yes, um, but I, I think uh, it, it would be really interesting to see some uh, really robust work on that. Uh, and it would be really interesting for, I think, historians to get at those cables, uh, and one would have to sort of negotiate how that was done. But I, I think it, it, there is a really interesting archive of quarter of a million documents that tell you uh, about how American foreign policy is conducted and how American foreign policy is seen and, and how diplomacy works. So I, I think there, there are lots of uh, things in there in, in the first and broader uh, lessons. Um, in, in terms of journalism and, and uh, the lessons that we've been thinking about since, um, Daniel Domscheit Berg, who's, who's now started something called Openly, so, so Daniel is a kind of, sort of um, he, he's basically a technologist. Um, he hasn't got great aspirations to be a great public figure or anything. Um, he, he basically breaks what organizations like WikiLeaks or his own new organization, OpenLeaks, down in, into three things. The, the receiving of information, the editing of information, the publishing of information. Um, the receiving of information is, uh, I think, something that, as mainstream organizations, we hadn't thought carefully uh, enough about. And it really boils down to, in, in a digital age, uh, anybody who wants to be a whistleblower has got to live with the fact that there's almost nothing you can do that doesn't leave a fingerprint. Uh, and so um, the, the business of how technology can erase fingerprints um, is a, a highly technical one uh, that I think we just haven't given enough uh, thought to. 
So their, their solution to it is is to become the intermediary, uh, a bit like WikiLeaks was with this information. So they, they will see it, <coughs> clean all the metadata off it that can possibly identify who the source is, um, and 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 use um, are there any technologists in the room who understand this sort of the, 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 this Tor software that, that um, I mean, it involves basically smashing it into millions of little bits, uh, to use a technical expression, and then <laughs> re reuniting it. And, and it, if you can smash it into little bits and, um, and put it on lots of people's servers and then hook it up again, and it matters which jurisdiction you then bring it back into, um, that's essentially what they propose you do. And it's a really interesting idea. It's fraught with difficulties from the point of view of the journalist because it removes you from your source. Uh, and if you want to go back to the source and say, I need to check this or, have, uh, or, or take this idea further, you, you, you've got an intermediary between you and your source. So lots of journalists um, are sort of interested in this idea, <coughs> but basically are not entirely happy with the idea that you're going to have to deal through an organization like WikiLeaks or OpenLeaks. Uh, in order to do it, though we're talking to people like Tom Schattberg about how you could create a little sort of leaking button uh, on your website that would go through his technology and come straight through to our website. But I, I think the narrative that I've just described of the relationship with, with Julian uh, indicates that the, the idea of having an intermediary is, is not without uh, its problems. So the second bit is, is editing. Um, so, so Tom Scheiberg and, and the Sand would say, look, we can do the receiving better than you can. You're, you're old journalists. You don't understand all this technology. Um, uh, and you're irresponsible in the way you handle documents because you don't, you don't understand it. The editing bit, um, actually, Tom Scheiberg is, is interesting, I think, because he, he, he's quite frank. He says, look, you, we can't do that. You can do that much better than us. Um, uh, I don't think Julian would go that far. Um, I like Don Scheibberg better on that because he says, uh, actually, we, we can't make sense of it. Um, you know, we, we, there's, there's these huge amounts of data. Uh, and you know, I think what we did uh, over, over many months was to bring in the people who had been war correspondents, who had been in Afghanistan, who had been in Pakistan, who had been in Russia and China who knew about the pharmaceutical industry, who could go in, find interesting stuff, evaluate it, uh, clean it up, make it safe, and, and write about it interestingly. So that's what, that's what journalism is. Uh, and I, I think it, it sort of proved the value of mainstream journalism. I mean, uh, we, can, we can verify it, make sense of it. Um, we, we went on a vertical learning curve about how you search amongst uh, that, that kind of database how you visualize data, and I think to the extent to which data is going to become a more important part of journalism in the future. Uh, that was a, a really interesting thing. We tried little exercises in crowdsourcing it and saying, you know, we may have missed stuff. What would you like us to search for? And we had about 3,000 uh, uh, suggestions as to things that we might have missed. Um, and I think there's an interesting sort of counterfactual that if you can imagine mainstream journalists not having been part of this, so if, if Julian had just, um, if that meeting between Nick Davis and Julian had never taken place, uh, and Julian had just dumped the whole lot on the internet, um, what would have happened? Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I think we know enough about the way the internet works 
that people would have swarmed all over that data and would have found interesting things, but whether it would have had quite the impact and uh, emerged in quite so coherent way as it did and would have had the impact of, of mainstream media organizations with, with very large uh, audiences um, and simultaneous publication. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see, to speculate about, uh, about what would happen if you didn't involve mainstream media organizations. I'm sure it would have resulted in people being endangered, and I'm sure there would have been a, a, a therefore a, a very effective backlash against it, which never really sort of got up and running in the way that we handled it. But then, uh, apart from the editor, that, 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 that's the receiving, that's the editing, and then finally the publishing. And in a sense, you could argue that, that both they can, they, we can both do that. Um, uh, and and, and, and it, it was part of the agreement with WikiLeaks that they did publish simultaneously with us. And I suspect that's due to the point that I mentioned earlier, which is about Julian's desire to be seen as an editor-in-chief, which I think was, was, it was a, him thinking in advance of, of wanting to have that First Amendment protection when, when he published. And he could only do that by saying, I'm a publisher, I'm not just a source. Uh, so we, we can both do that. Um, we clearly have it uh, on The Guardian. We have a, a, an enormous audience uh, globally uh, of now about 40 million uh, a month. Um, but again, I think we've learned interesting things. Uh, uh, the, more, the more I think about it in this, this business of that, that very first conversation between Nick and Julian, when Julian said, let's do this with The New York Times, I think what we were doing there was to anchor this whole thing on the First Amendment. So there's been lots, lots of discussions about, um, and not only discussions, but, but real experiences within newspapers of, of the fear that we were all going to be dragged down to the lowest common denominator of, of the legal jurisprudence. Uh, and, and we've all um, you know, mugged up on the law in, in Russia and, and Zimbabwe and, and, and Pakistan and, uh, and states that don't have uh, the, the kind of um, protection that America does or even London does. Uh, and actually, I think this was a rather brilliant inversion of that, where you say, actually, by uh, rooting this on First Amendment publishing with the New York Times, uh, we will have the protection of the best um, and most open jurisprudence um, in the world, uh, uh, or, or one of them. Um, and I think that that, coupled with this open way of publishing, is a really significant thing for the future, um, because I, I think um, Julian's vision of, of, of using uh, uh, um, beyond national news organizations uh, as ways of challenging repressive regimes, uh, I think, begins to have real flesh. Now, you can only do that if you're an open organization, and I'm, that's just going to be, I'm going to deal with that in five minutes now. But if you're an open me media organization like The Guardian, uh, you can be read simultaneously in Cairo, uh, and in Washington, and in London, and in, in Moscow. Um, but, you're, but you're pinning your, your, your publication rights on, on the American First Amendment. Uh, then what you're allowing these whistleblowers to do is to challenge their, their own governments via mainstream media, using harnessing the, the American First Amendment uh, to challenge autographic states and these people who don't have a free press themselves. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a really, it's almost the most important thing that has, potential that has come out of this. 
And that's why, to me, it's so important that we watch how uh, America deals with Bradley Manning uh, and with Julian Assange himself, because uh, I think so far, I, I think the, the American administration, the Obama administration, has reacted materially to this and not <coughs> gone over the top. But um, you saw in the, in the 22 extra charges that were uh, leveled against Bradley Manning this week, um, which seems to raise the possibility of a death penalty uh, and the extent to which it appears the Justice Department is still trying to find any excuse to get at Assange. I think that would send a, a terrible signal to the world about the, the potential uh, for, um, for, for, for what we've done and to, to manifest itself um, in future. So that, that was WikiLeaks, and it just leads me on to, um, uh, just, I want to do sort of five minutes about this word open, um, because it, it's absolutely guiding the way we think of the, the, the shape of the garden at the moment. So I think the truth uh, about, we're in the strange phase of, of um, the, 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 the development of digital publishing, um, which was thumbed up to me by somebody from um, the, the, um, the world of book publishing, um, which is basically no one knows anything. Um, this was somebody who works for a major book corporation and said, we, we, you know, we have a board meeting on Thursday and we decide what we're going to do. and then. Somebody does something in America. It could be Andrew Wiley, the agent. It could be Steve Jobs on the iPad. It could be Amazon. So it could be to do with rights. It could be software. It could be with the hardware. Uh, that completely reverses what we thought on the Thursday, and we have another board meeting on the Tuesday and <laughs> decide to do something completely different. And it was a very familiar feeling, right? Um, because one moment you have. Yeah, I remember, if you just think about the iPad, right about October, the iPad was going to be the saviour of everything, and, and Rupert Murdoch was announcing the entire iPad newspaper. Uh, and then about January, um, uh, people started writing these things saying, actually, we're not so sure about the iPad and whether that's going to be the saviour uh, either. Uh, and, and, and the truth is, at the moment, there is no economic model that anybody can point to, I think, that, that, that you can say, uh, that's that's the future of journalism. So, you, uh, and, and I'm sure book publishers feel the same. You know. And so you're you're stuck there, aware that things are moving very fast, and yet on the surface, um, nothing's moving because nobody can confidently say it's over there or follow me, it's over there. Um, it's, it's, and and that that's why you always get dragged into these debilitating debates about whether it's a it's a paywall or it's not a paywall or whether it's a part paywall, and, and those seem to be obviously important discussions. Um, but there's a much bigger discussion about this open versus closed, uh, and I think you can you can see that very easily in what happens if you put a complete paywall. So to the extent I'm going to talk about paywalls, but if you put a complete paywall around your contact and completely wall it off. Uh, and the loss of audience and influence, and therefore the detrimental effect on your journalism that, that it eventually has. Uh, and you can, you can absolutely see that in what's, what's been going on in the Middle East and North Africa recently. The, the thought, you know, there, there would have been nobody in Cairo that was reading the Times. <coughs> it's inconceivable that Julian Assange would ever have taken his material to the Times, because nobody's going to read it. Um, and, and, and so uh, you can cut yourself off from the world in chasing revenues, though it turns out that they're quite meager revenues. Uh, not many people sign up to it. 
and 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 thereby you 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 lessen your influence, uh, which in the end is bound to uh, affect who wants to tell you things or who wants to give you things and the the information that you get. Um, and that that is the most example extreme example of of closed ways of working. And I just think if you if you think about the way that information outside the media, if you raise your head from the immediate competitive set and you say, what way is scientific information going? What way is academic publishing going? What way is, is politics going to be conducted in the future? What way is activism and culture uh, going to um, manifest itself? Look at, look at uh, all the things to do with, with uh, social networks and, and publishing. Uh, and it seems to me uh, pretty obvious that the, the, the open bit of that um, the ecosystem is the thing that's going to be such a potent idea uh, that I would um, feel very uneasy if the, if the Guardian wasn't on the open side of that argument. But you know, we could unpack that idea and, 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 and understand more deeply what it means. But in broad terms, uh, and this is where the WikiLeaks and the open bit comes to, the, the, the WikiLeaks exercise had its power and its influence and its impact, uh, and it's the, the possibility for doing it at all, because the Guardian is uh, part of this open, networked, collaborative uh, uh, information. Uh, and I think that's what, in the absence of anyone absolutely coming up with a provable business model here or there, that is the most profitable uh, and, and richest way to be thinking about the future of journalism at the moment. I'll stop there and we can see where it all goes.